0: Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner, and I'm a barrister specializing in human rights. This podcast is all about human rights. This episode was a recorded from a lecture I gave at Le Mude together on Sunday, the 3rd of May. And it's about why the human rights system developed in the way it did after the most enormous crises of the 20th century, and how it can help us both as a tool a sword and a shield to address the pandemic we're experiencing at the moment. The podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmith's Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London and up till 15th of May there are three lectureships being offered including one on human rights and you can find out more at gold.act.uk. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful, then please consider supporting it. Just £3 a month from a couple of hundred people would help keep this podcast going on a fortnightly basis for the coming years. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for inviting me and um, welcome to the New World Order where well, we're all going to be sitting watching Limwood sessions all day, every day for the rest of time. Um, I'm going to be talking about COVID 19 and human rights. Um, just a bit about me. I'm a barrister, a lawyer who specializes in the human rights. I'm at Doughty Street Chambers in London. And a lot of my recent work is around COVID 19, particularly because I'm acting as a specialist advisor to the Joint Committee on Human Rights um, inquiry into the government response to COVID 19. And what I wanted to do today was talk about how we can use human rights as a tool to understand how to respond to this enormous, almost unimaginable crisis. Um, and, and my basic premise is this isn't an unimaginable crisis. This is a crisis we have imagined. People have imagined this crisis and they have developed tools to address it and, or to address something very much like it. And keep an eye on the shield and the sword because um, that, that's, a, that's a metaphor I'm gonna use a bit during the session. Um, so the plan is I'll do a sort of brief introduction to the the human rights basics and then I'm going to talk about in fact five key human rights issues arising from COVID-19 and then have as much of a discussion as I can um, and please type questions as I'm going and then at the end I will look at the questions and we'll try and, and bring you up and you can ask the question we'll have a discussion. So the, the origin of the human rights movement I'm going back to 1945 and particularly to six years between 1945 and 1951. You can see four individuals um, pictured there. They're not the only individuals, but they are important individuals. Um, I'm not going to give people points for naming them um, as I would normally do because it's a bit awkward over Zoom. But there you have Winston Churchill from the left, Eleanor Roosevelt, René Cassin, and David Maxwell Fyfe, um, Churchill was absolutely instrumental in the modern human rights movement. He said human rights. He can. He envisages a society where human right, where there's an enthronement of human rights, where human rights are put on on a pedestal. In fact, on a throne. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt was the chair of the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights drafting committee. Rene Cassan was a very um, important. Influence on the Universal Declaration, he was a Jewish um, French jurist who was extremely influential, um, and in his in his thinking and also his action. And David Maxwell Fife, who was a British prosecutor, he prosecuted at the Nuremberg Trials. He, if you look him up on YouTube, you can watch him cross-examining Hermann Goering amongst other people at the Nuremberg Trials in 1946. Um, I've spoken about him at Limud before, and he was chaired the drafting committee of the European Convention on Human Rights. The human rights movement was based on three revolutionary principles. The first was that all humans have the same rights. And that doesn't sound as revolutionary now as it would have sounded in 1948 in the Universal Declaration. There have been lots of um, human rights declarations over centuries, um, and particularly um, the declarations of the rights of man in the 1700s, the um, the American Bill of Rights, these were all declarations of rights, but they weren't declarations of human rights. They were rights that were very much ba- they were very much limited to a specific group of people, whether it's usually men, white men, um, people in a particular state. Human rights are about all humans having the same rights all over the world and whoever they are, what colour, creed, race, whatever. Another revolutionary principle is that human rights are based on the concept of dignity. And what is dignity? Dignity is, about, is, is something that is in the core of all of us that represents an essential factor of flourishing as a human being if you are a human being without dignity, it's very difficult to to be happy, it's very difficult to get on in life, it's very difficult to flourish. Um, And thirdly, that rights, not rulers, are at the heart of every society. And this is really looking back at history um, and looking back at the moment in, in 1948 or around that time, we'd seen lots of different kinds of societies from, ancient democracies to dictatorships to communist societies and what varied in those societies was the extent to which how you were benefited or how you were um, rewarded in those societies was connected to your closeness to the ideas and the person of the leader and the closer that the leader and the closer that everything was to the leader and the, what the leader think and what the leader says, the further away we were from a human rights-based society, a rights-based society. And this, um, this idea really was what Churchill was talking about when he said, Let's, we need to enthrone human rights. It wasn't that these are some sort of magical or godlike um, uh, principles. It's that you have to put rights at the centre of society, not the ruler. Um, so a few key dates around that period, so 1945 to 1951. 1945, the United Nations was formed. Um, and one of the essential points to understand about human rights, what distanced them from what went before, was that, the in, the, was that they were inter, truly international. So it didn't matter which country or which, or, or where you were born, you were part of this, you had essential human rights um, and that meant you needed international institutions. It was no longer good enough to have just each nation doing its best to enforce or, or otherwise the rights of the individuals in that nation. And the Charter of the Union, United Nations, um, and I just quoted three bits from it, to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights in the dignity and worth of the human person in equal rights of men and women and of nations large and small and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom and you see that saving succeeding generations from the scourge of war clearly in 1948 that was an extremely important idea how do you stop another world war that would potentially with the with the advent of nuclear weapons destroy the world or destroy civilization dignity and worth of the human person Um, and promoting social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom all key concepts um 1948 something that I haven't uh, so I've done lots of these kind of lectures before but I don't usually include the World Health Organization um, in those lectures in this kind of timeline and I realized what a mistake that was um, because of recent events in 1948 the World Health Organization was set up as a part of the United Nations and its charter is worth it's sorry its constitution is worth looking at now in the current context Uh, here's just a few bits from it health is a state of complete physical mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity the enjoyment of the highest attainable standards of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being without distinction of race religion political belief economic or social condition so that wide definition of health of not really just being about free of disease it's something bigger and it is the entitlement of every human being without discrimination Again, this, this is a revolutionary concept because what went before and what we can still see now is that where you were born dictated in, in large part what, right of access, what access to healthcare you had and how likely you were to be healthy. The health of all peoples is fundamental to the attainment of peace and security. The achievement of any state in the promotion and protection of health is of value to all. An unequal development in different countries and the promotion of health and the control of disease, especially communicable disease, is a common danger. And we'll talk about that later. 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That's Eleanor Roosevelt. And this is something she said a little bit later. Um, where, after all, do universal rights begin? In small places close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. Yet they are the world of the individual person, the neighborhood he lives in, the school or college he attends, the factory farm, or office where he works. Such are the places where every man, woman, and child seeks equal justice, equal opportunity, equal dignity without discrimination. Unless these rights have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere. So the Universal Declaration is a, is a document which was a, agreed by most of the nations in the world and it sets out the essential rights that everybody needs to live a dignified and flourishing life. One of the, one of the things that I've realised um, about the Universal Declaration, if you read the rights and you imagine it being flipped around, you, you, it's actually a mirror image of the rights that were taken away from those who were persecuted during the, the years that preceded 1948 the right to property, the right to education, the right to family life, all of these were taken away bit by bit from those who were persecuted. And this is a document and this is an, a set of ideas which is aimed at preventing that happening again. Um, 1948, the Genocide Convention. So this is a convention which, which for the first time in international law prohibits genocide. That's the, 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 the killing of a group of people because of their of their race or religion or some aspect of them their genus their type and genocide was a if you you read philippe sands book east west street you can read the history of the term genocide which is a term which didn't exist before the nuremberg trials where the nazi war criminals were put on trial um, for their actions during the the war and during the holocaust 1951, this is the final date in this sort of brief roundup, the, the European Convention on Human Rights. So the Universal Declaration is a set of principles, in essence. Um, it's not binding on states. So if, you, if a state breaches those rights, even if they've signed up to it, there's not really a comeback. There is a little bit, but not really. So following on from the Universal Declaration, there were a series of more local um treaties one of which was the european convention which sought to put these rights on a legal footing for particular states that signed up to them so the european convention contains a number of rights which if a state which has signed up to it breaches in respect of an individual then that individual can take them to the european court of human rights take the state and the state through this european convention through this treaty has agreed to abide by the judgments um, why then? So why from 1948 to 1951 was this, there's this kind of proliferation of really important human rights ideas, principles, treaties, organisations? Well, I, I'm, I'm guessing for most people it's pretty obvious Um, because of what happened before. Um, in, in just the 25 years or so before 1948, you have an unprecedented cataclysm of world events one after the other um 1914 1914 to 18 the first world war 1918 the spanish flu which killed probably more people than the first world war something like 50 million people died from the spanish flu could be as high as 100 million something we we maybe learn about as an aside in history but we haven't thought about it properly until recent months because of what's happening to us now. 1929, the Great Depression following the Wall Street Crash, um, the, the most profound worldwide depression um, in, 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 in history. And 1945, I don't know where the slide's gone, um, but the 19, 1939 to 1945, the Second World War and the Holocaust. Um, And um, So why human rights? Why did they arise from then? Well, first of all, the people who were behind the human rights movement, whether Churchill or Eleanor Roosevelt, the people I've mentioned, but many, many more, they had seen firsthand in their lifetimes what happens when when societies break down. And every society is different, but social, social breakdown tends to look pretty similar people turn inwards and they turn on each other. Um, and there can be great solid- solidarity when disasters strike, but there can also be great disaster because the because people get blamed. Um, and I'm speaking to a, a Jewish conference at the moment and the history of the Jews is to a large extent being blamed for disasters that had nothing to do with them, whether it was the Black Death Um, in the middle ages or the great depression you know these are all or the burr war these are all things that had jews have been blamed for but jews are not the only persecuted group that tends to get blamed for things Um, and what happens when societies break down and groups get blamed is is groups get attacked and they get and, and and they get the anger and the fear taken out on them And there was this real understanding, perhaps for the first time in history, that crises would now, as they have been for the first half of the 20th century, be global. Wars would be global. Pandemics would be global. Depressions would be global. The world had become so interconnected that every crisis would be global, potentially, the big ones. And that meant you needed global solutions. You needed solutions that weren't specific to states, but were that but were universal to all states and that's this idea of universal human rights the first really global idea of rights protection and human rights could be a crisis toolkit so just as when you have a global pandemic who do you look look to to um to set your strategy for suppressing the spread of a virus where you go to epidemiologists who've been working on this for years and decades understanding how pandemics work and how you can how they're likely to spread and how a society can work to stop them spreading in the same way that when a society starts to break down or is at risk of breaking down you can look to the human rights toolkit and it's essentially a set of it's an early warning system for what is likely to happen where will um where will erosions of rights happen how will they happen why will they happen and how can we stop them happening because at the end of the process of the erosion of rights is is what we see what we saw in the first half of the 20th century and what we saw subsequently which is genocide persecution um slavery these extraordinary evil outcomes so it's an early warning system, a toolkit. Um, and finally, that shield and the sword that I had in the opening slide. Human rights as, as principles are a shield in the sense of if you build them into your social structures, so you ensure that whatever you do, you make sure you're protecting people's individual rights and that nobody gets left behind it's essentially a shield against incursions of rights and that can work during a crisis, but also a sword because there's, there is a protective element, but there's also a progressive element to the rights movement. There always was. Um, and I think that's clear from the United Nations Charter that I read out at the beginning, that there is this idea of increasing the progressive, um, the, the increasing the development of progressive societies So building equality, dignity, um, and non-discrimination into into the basic structures of every society. And the reason I've called it a sword, because it's something which you can, these principles are something you can wield, which you can achieve results by, and you can make things better, as well as protecting yourself when things break down. And the reason a crisis um, gives rise to both of those ideas is because what you can see from the 1940s and early 50s is that these terrible events which had happened in those five or so years caused a moment where things could change and progress could be made Um, and that's something i'll come back to at the end the better human podcast is supported by your contributions if you find it useful and interesting I would really appreciate if you consider giving just three dollars a month that's just over two pounds via our Patreon that's patreon.com forward slash better and if a couple of hundred people do that then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Um, so here are the rights in, in the European Convention, and I'm moving on now to the response to COVID-19. And I look at, look at a few issues and then open up, open up to questions. So these are, these are the rights in the European Convention. The Universal Declaration is actually quite a lot wider and has something called social rights in it. Um, and social rights are things like a right to health, um, a right to housing, a right to Social Security. Uh, But these are the European Convention rights. These are the rights that apply in law in the United Kingdom. And I just want to highlight some of the rights which are in play during this crisis and which are potentially um, going to be affected for quite large groups of people. So the first and most obvious is the right to life. Um, And one of the important things to understand about the response to COVID-19 is as a human rights lawyer it's not for me to say well every time you restrict someone's liberty or their or their basic rights to protect against infection or death that that is a breach of human rights it's not that's not the way it works human rights human rights exist in balance with each other and sometimes one will prevail over the other because of circumstances and that's why this sort of unprecedented and you know a few months ago unimaginable lockdown where people are effectively putting their lives on pause almost unable to leave their houses unable to do their work unable to educate their children why in some instances that can be justified because the state has a duty to protect life and without these measures these extraordinary measures it's not possible to protect life um, the right not to be unlawfully detained. In principle, you could say that we are currently being detained in our own homes. Um, is that permitted? Well, the Article 5, the right, the right itself, if you read it, has a specific provision which says you can, in certain limited circumstances, detain somebody if it's for the purpose of preventing the spread of infectious disease. And there's no surprise that would be in there in 1951 when it was written down, because you had had the Spanish flu, you'd had cholera, you'd had very regular outbreaks of infectious diseases. So It's clearly something that will be relevant. The right to a fair trial. Well, at, the, at the moment, criminal trials aren't really happening. And there's talk of potentially reducing down juries so you can do them and use uh, you can use social distancing in courts there's a potential for getting rid of juries altogether and um, courts are happening online a lot of courts are happening by video link um is how is that affecting people's right to a fair trial um right to family and private life well people aren't able to see their families at the moment um, and their private life is potentially being interfered with by contact tracing apps or um public health interventions we'll talk a bit more about that freedom of thought conscience and religion Well, every synagogue mosque and church and temple in if the country are shut at the moment um, until further notice it's hard to imagine a more um, extreme restriction on religious life than that is it justified um, it's an open question and it will change as the situation changes and um, freedom of association, we're currently not allowed out of the house without in, in a group of more than two people, unless it's um, people from our own house. So protests are not allowed to happen. Um, again, an extraordinary restriction. Anti-discrimination, some groups are experiencing COVID-19 differently to others. Um, black and minority ethnic communities are suffering deaths, uh, at, it seems, at a higher rate than other communities. Um, older people are being told they're going to have to stay in their ho- homes for 12 weeks, people over 70. The British, Medi- the British Medical Association has said last night that that would be unacceptable and um, basing uh, the, a lockdown purely on age and not risk factors. It's all sorts of potentially discriminatory elements at the moment. And um, peaceful enjoyment of property. many Most people can't go about their businesses. Businesses have to shut. Um, the right to education. Kids aren't at school. And um, we'll talk a bit more about that um, in, 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 as one of the issues. Um, so I'm just going to look at five issues um, pretty, pretty briefly to allow some time for questions. The first one is the lockdown. Second one is the state responsibility for deaths, um, and particularly in hospital and care home settings. Three, contact tracing. The school shutdown. And finally, international solid- solidarity. So the first one is the lockdown. Um, this, was, uh, this, is, this is a tweet that was sent by uh, Central Bedfordshire um, Police. If you think that by going for a picnic in a rural location, no one will find you, don't be surprised if an officer appears from the shadows. We are covering the whole country. Pretty creepy, tr- creepy tweets. Um, one of a number of creepy tweets that were sent by police officers in the early days of the lockdown now there's lots to say about the the laws which are have been put in place to enforce the lockdown um i'll give you a sort of brief summary so in, in 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 on i think march 23rd a set of emergency regulations came into force which said three important things first of all that a very large range of businesses were going to have to shut, and the police would be have have powers to enforce that. Secondly, that all gatherings of more than two people were banned unless those people were from your household. And third of all, that you cannot leave the place where you're living without a reasonable excuse. And there's a list of reasonable excuses in the regulations. Um, a non-exhaustive list. So, what that means in, in legal terms is that there's a list of examples, and all of those are reasonable excuses. So, things like um, things like going out for exercise, um, for a child leaving the place where they live if they live with one parent to go and live with the, their other parent for a bit, um, going to a funeral. There's a number of reasonable excuses, but non-exhaustive because there are any anything that is. A reasonable excuse could potentially be valid, but they're pretty. It's they're pretty. Uh, it's a pretty vague law, and the enforcement powers are pretty extreme. So police can use reasonable force to return someone to where they're living if they are outside of their house without a reasonable excuse. So if they're having a picnic, for example, um, and and there were early examples of the police. Shop, uh, saying they're going to be st- uh, searching shopping trolleys to um, look for non essential items, um, even though there's no- nothing in the law which prevents you buying non essential items. What it says is you can go out and buy basic necessities, um, go and shop for basic necessities. It doesn't say you can't pick up things that aren't basic necessities on your shop. There were e- examples of police setting up roadblocks. Um, it was really quite a uh, a worrying situation for those first f- couple of probably the first week um a few points to note about these regulations they are the most draconian restrictions on individual liberty since the second world war so for over 70 years they were brought in with no debate and not even a vote in parliament their emergency powers so the government is able to go from the 23rd of March to the 16th of May without a single debate or vote in Parliament. They have to be affirmed by vote on the 16th of May. But that really is extraordinary. Um, And the other thing is they don't reflect exactly what was in the government guidance, which is one of the reasons why the police were dealing with them in quite a confused way at the beginning. Um, And and, and for example, the the government guidance says only go out once a day for exercise, but the regulations don't set a limit except in wales for some reason and that has caused a huge amount of confusion um it's all happened r- really quickly and urgently so to an extent it can be can be excused but it's now there's now been found to be, have been a number of wrongful convictions um, and also I, I think i saw this morning that, that nine thousand 000 um, fines have been given up by police officers now police can give fines if, if if they consider that someone is outside of their house without a reasonable excuse that's the language so it's a very subjective and it's very based very much reliant on what police think you're up to and um, so all sorts of potential issues arising and then if you get to court are you being um, dealt with by a court that can has a public gallery where journalists are going to be it's much more difficult for journalists to get out open justice is also suffering and, and that is, gives rise to lots of problems Um, so second issue state responsibility for death and i think this is something we're going to hear a lot more about in the coming months and years the the state the state and in fact um companies have a responsibility to provide in law under the health and safety act the health and safety regulations to provide adequate um personal protective equipment for people at work and there are all sorts of stories. I don't need to go into them because you'll have seen them about, the, about potential failures to get hold of personal protective equipment at hospitals, in care homes, um, on public transport. Um, I, I, I heard the other day that the proportion of public transport workers dying um, as a result of COVID-19 is well above um, other um, workers. And there's a potential question about whether they were given adequate personal protective equipment. But where, this, where, this comes, where human rights law comes into it is because you, health and safety law is not the same as human rights law. But human rights law requires that under the right to life that there should be an adequate and um, open investigation into deaths where the state is arguably complicit. So where the state has arguably failed to carry out its duties to protect individuals. And that will require in the coming months and years coroner's investigations um special human rights enhanced coroner's investigations which will look at the overall overarching circumstances potentially including the decision making which went into um providing personal protective equipment and other protections um against for health workers and for other people working for the state um, but also potentially and i i and i think a lot of lawyers are saying this is something which will have to happen a, a public inquiry into what happened and um, and the and, and human rights law sometimes does require there to be a public inquiry so a judge led um inquiries act inquiry an inquiry un, under the inquiries act 2005 which has all sorts of powers to compel evidence to um to set its own agenda and to really get to the bottom of what happened i think that will have to happen that's the second issue. Um, a third issue, which is engaging human rights, and 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 where human rights ideas and principles are a very useful tool for understanding the different balancing exercises that are going on, is contact tracing. So contact tracing is not new. In fact, it's it's a pretty ancient way of dealing with pandemics, where you find somebody that you think is infected, and that's the person in the in the picture in in, in the hospital bed and you ask them who have you been in contact with for the in recent days before you either while you were symptomatic or just before and they tell you and you speak to those people and you try and figure out who they've been in contact with and you and you uh, try and understand the network of people that may be connected that may be connected to this individual who's infected and may have been infected themselves and you get them to isolate themselves that's the the simple principle of contact tracing but contact tracing when done with a public health official asking all those questions is extremely onerous and difficult so the idea that a lot of countries are going for um early in early days south korea um, israel have been using this kind of technology is an app on the phone which traces your movements and traces other people's movements and automatically will know if you've been close enough to that person during the period in which you were potentially infectious to have infected them and will alert them that they have potentially been infected and it's pretty simple idea but the technology is really fiendish and there's essentially two main models at the moment there's an apple and google um, decentralized approach where everything is contained on each individual phone and each individual phone doesn't upload the data to a central server Um, and then there's the the central server version where the the phone uploads information to the cloud about where that person's been and potentially then knows who they've been in touch with and or who they've been in contact with and then will warn those people or maybe even will will um, communicate that information to public health officials who can then address it and there's also and, and the right to privacy is very much in play here because it is an enormous incursion in our right to privacy to have the state knowing where we are at all times Um, and we're going to be asked to do this voluntarily but once we've clicked yes there's huge questions about where will that data go who will have access to it how will it be used how will it be protected and these aren't new questions they might be questions for contact tracing but these are questions that have been very carefully considered um, in data privacy law um, over many many decades um since the advent of um of of, te- of companies using our data and the um the general data protection regulation which is an eu instrument which is the probably the most sophisticated um principle principled way of protecting data in a human rights com- compatible way which requires openness and transparency and adequate plain English communication about what's happening to our data, being able to see what's happening to our data, being able to opt out um, clearly whenever we want to, of people using our data. Um, these are these are principles which we can now apply as, as a toolkit to test these con- the these contact the technology of the contact tracing apps. And there's another example is how human rights can be used as a tool. Fourth issue, the right to education. Um, so this is something i've been working on um with the good law project for the past few weeks um and particularly while the issue that i've been looking at is while kids are i think 99 percent of children who co- could be at school are currently not at school because I mean, as in school age children so 99 percent of children are at home um, home education is being in most part provided for by online education um now it's not nobody is saying that is a full substitute to in-person education everybody wants the kids to go back to school um, as soon as they can but if they can't for an extended period and online education is being provided then what about the very significant proportion of families who simply don't have the equipment to access the online education um quite a, a lot of families will have a single device in their home or even no devices but if they've got a single device it probably a pay-as-you-go phone maybe they've got three kids and they're all trying to access it at the same time on the small screen um, i've been working on a case which is potentially challenging the government's um the government not making provision for those kids and in fact the government have now announced i think up to 100 million pound project to provide laptops and tablets to kids most that need um, disadvantaged kids in that situation but it's really difficult um scenario all, all in um, finally that the, the international dimension it's it's very easy in in these crises i said at the very beginning that in crises we tend to turn inwards and fair enough you know we're protecting our own um, because we're we're concerned about our our personal safety our family's safety our, our community's safety and that is just the way humans behave but at the same time we can't forget there is a world out there um, and particularly a there are large parts of the world who have infinite almost infinitely less capacity to uh, deal with a crisis like covid19 imagine a, an outbreak of covid19 in a refugee camp with tens of thousands of people all clumped together can't do social distancing in a refugee camp you don't have medical facilities you don't have um, enough doctors who uh, you don't have enough protective equipment it's it's a nightmare imagine it in, in somewhere i mean in, in um in certain countries have almost no access to the medical equipment they're going to need to deal with an outbreak i think i I read that sierra leone has one ventilator i think gaza has seven ventilators these are there are going to be there's going to be a world crisis if leading to the kind of cataclysms in those countries that i talked about at the beginning and 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 if it if it comes We need to remember those founding principles of the World Health Organization that threats to health in other parts of the world are threats to all of us and large scale social breakdown will affect all of us. Um, And that's the essential principle of solidarity. So to sum up, all humans have rights Um, and this is an essential lens to understand how we set up our societies um, human rights are a crucial toolkit to understand how we respond to crises and they should and, and the toolkit is ready it's there it's waiting just like a pandemic response strategy um, and it works human rights we should always there's there, they can get get a bit complicated and there's a balancing exercise for different rights you know when does the right to life over um when when should it um be how should it be balanced against the right to religion or the right to f- to freedom of association? Those are very difficult issues for every society, but essentially you've got to maintain a person's dignity and a person's ability to flourish. And um, finally, a shield and a sword. And I would hope that we both use human rights as a shield during the situation to make sure that nobody gets left behind in our responses, but also as a sword, because with every crisis, comes an opportunity to remake societies in a way which we which foregrounds people's dignity people's ability to flourish Um, and just as after those crises in the 1920s 30s and 40s we developed these international systems after this crisis we should look to strengthen those systems because god knows a we need the world health organization to be successful and well-funded um and we must if we can't see that now how when will we ever see it okay so um discussion compulsory vaccinations i uh, th- i think that that's more of a medical ethical question than a human rights question but i think the essential point i'd make is that consent is at the heart of all modern medical practice i can't see compulsory vaccinations happening for for adults who have capacity to make their own decisions. Um, and I think that is does give rise to hu- privacy issues and medical ethical issues. Fran has asked about practicing medicine. Fran, the floor is yours. It's a human right to have access to alternative forms of medicine, such as homeopathy, including in the NHS. I've recently suffered coronavirus and homeopathy didn't put me brand i think the answer in in law um is no i don't i don't think there is a human right i mean there's, there's there's barely a human right to health it's a pretty it's a pretty weak right the the reason we've got a right to health in the united kingdom is the is the nhs act um, which you know uh, which the, the, the 1948 is this is another 1948 in, in, innovation was the nhs Um, the National Health Service healthcare at the point of use but I don't think it extends to homeopathy except in very limited circumstances Great, thank you Adam We are going to Stephanie in Edinburgh How concerned in the coronavirus environment should we be about the UK government's repeated ambiguity about whether or not it wants to stay a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights? um I, I something i'm always worried about and the, the the conservative party is has long been um antithetical to the european convention um and it's it's something that that, that a number of the current cabinet are very skeptical about um I, that comes back to my sort of sword, shield and sword point that this is an opportunity to show um in in essence why we need these international institutions because crises don't um, just crises don't just sit around in low locally anymore we have we have global crises and we need global solutions global structures global institutions to address those crises and and if you remember the the universal declaration starts with the um the, the i think it's in the opening sentence of the preamble that this is about in the end preventing aggressive war um and because we maybe are we are lucky not to know, not to remember, that what happens in times of economic and social insecurity is states go to war. And international institutions are the best way we've found to preventing that happening again. And that's what we've got to avoid. Great, thank you. Now we go to Nicola in Glasgow. No, Yeah, I was um, asking about how the internet... And particularly social media has affected um, our, the attacks on our rights. And how on earth are we going to develop a solution um, to that going forward? I, I think the, the internet, is, it, it, it's changed the world we live in. and it's not. And we can't put that genie back in the bottle. And it's brought with it lots of very important innovations. And the particular innovation is making our world smaller. Um, and networking people across different countries and across the world so we can see what's happening and we can speak to people and we can understand people that we couldn't access before except through the media and i think that is extraordinary and important but on the other hand you have the very well-known problem of fake news you have the problem of right it's an opportunity to rile people up just as any new media is and um, i was i was um quite um positive when i saw that um david ike who's a conspiracy theorist and you know he's he's does he said uh he's spreading conspiracies about covid19 has been taken off youtube and facebook and i think there is an element of uh growing understanding that private companies such as facebook and google can play a role in reducing down the influence of particularly influential conspiracy theorists and um provocateurs but on the other hand um it's just it's still the wild west and it's still a very difficult environment to control um and and also freedom of speech is is a fundamental right and social media undoubtedly gives us all a platform that we didn't have before so there's good and there's bad Hi, thanks. And thanks, Adam, for a really great session, a great framework for discussing this. I was, this builds on the question you, about immunisation. How do you see the intersection between ethics and rights, like issues like who gets testing, who gets access to testing? We know politicians get access more readily. Is that an ethical issue or a rights issue? Do ethics help us understand rights? So I just talked about in, in the UK, I think there's actually a really good framework in the UK for for testing the decision making the prioritization for healthcare and for things like um, for interventions like immunization and testing and it's the anti-discrimination um, laws so a- an example is that the in, in every decision the government makes in including the NHS under the Equality Act it has to assess the Extent to which that decision may be discriminatory against protected groups. Um, So racial groups or older people or um, people of a particular religion. So if the um, if the NHS decides, for example, to just as one idea that's been um, mooted in in other countries to give people a sort of certificate of immunity when they can leave the leave the home um, so they can go back to work that might be a that might have discriminatory consequences and it might look it might be all of these potential solutions whether vaccination or contact tracing or, or whatever might be the way to reduce down a lockdown which in itself is extremely onerous and difficult for a lot of people so you might actually decide to do them even though they're they're not perfect solutions but at least through a, a rights framework you can assess beforehand the potentially Discriminatory um, effects; it's got those, those policies are going to have, and try and minimise them. Um, but minimising in this situation, I, I think I, I said recently on another talk that with COVID nineteen, you're looking in in many circumstances for the least bad solution rather than the best, because every solution to the crisis, whether it's a lockdown or undoing a lockdown or sending kids back to school, stopping kids going to school every um decision is has its has its hugely um uh difficult and, and complicated consequences and you're always weighing those up so i think a human rights framework is as good as any to consider that but and it will fit into the medical ethical framework which and, and a lot of doctors use human rights as well to understand their duties and vice versa um so i i, I think that that's that's the best answer i can give i think great thank you you thanks everybody thanks very much for joining me and to Limud together for inviting me to speak the Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London if you want to support the podcast please go to patreon.com forward slash better human and just three pounds a month from a couple of hundred people would support this podcast and make it sustainable Thanks very much. See you next time. My name is Adam Wagner and this is the Better Human Podcast.